Uh, it's good to be with all of you this morning. This is my home church. Glad to be here with you. Just want to thank everybody for uh, praying for me while I'm at seminary, for inviting me to be here today, for praying for my family amidst trials, and I hope that through the preaching of the word here and now, uh, I can give back something to you. Uh, your prayers have been a mighty powerful hand in my life. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. We're going to be turning to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you can find Hebrews, then James, then it's Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 12. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though, now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would bless this time in your word. Lord, give us ears to hear, all of us, myself included. And help me, Lord, to... Uh, bring the word of God in a clear and memorable way. And Lord, help us all to reform our lives according to your word. Uh, bless us by your spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And there's a lot of things under the sun that our hearts long for. Uh, even with uh, Mike and his intercessory prayer just a minute ago, it's kind of striking how many difficult situations people are in with cancer or other forms of disease that plague our bodies, uh, or difficult marriage situations or financial situations, all sorts of things uh, that uh, under the sun we start to long to either remove or to have something that would fix it. Uh, you know, so often we think, uh, you know, if, if I had such and such, my life would be better. If I had this, my life would go the way I want it to go. You know, one example would be money. 
know, people think, if, if I had this much money, I could buy the thing I want and lessen some of this suffering. More important to the question, than the question, why do you, uh, what do you long for under the sun, is the question, why do you long for these things? Why do we desire money or less suffering uh, or whatever it may be? Well, because we think it will bring rest in our trials. We think that it'll, it'll make the things we're going through a little easier. In our, in our longings, we forget one vital reality. So often, the object of our longings are things that will perish, things that will fade away, things that will rust, and things that will decay. You know, the Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. Do you long for things that will rust, decay, that thieves can break in and steal? Well, Peter here, writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, knows that these Jews have longed for things for a long time. They've longed to have a temple of the full glory of Solomon's temple. They've longed for their land promise. They've longed to have a kingdom as glorious as David's or better. Yet, as they've come to know Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they've been pushed out of their house, pushed out of their home, scattered, even where he calls them elect exiles, sojourners on this earth, pilgrims. They have no home, and they've been scattered because they've come to know Jesus. And what Peter brings to them is this idea that they have an inheritance that will never perish, never fade, never rust or decay. However, to these elect exiles and to so many of us today, it doesn't really look like we've received an inheritance. We call God our Father, and so often it doesn't really look from an earthly perspective like God is our Father, like we've inherited anything. Peter's uh, exhortation to these people and to us today is that we need to be those who, in looking to God, we put away worldliness and we live for Christ's kingdom. And we do that because of the inheritance that we've received in Jesus Christ. And we can deny the world, we can live for Christ, because we have been made a family centered around the resurrection of Jesus. We've been made a family centered around the resurrected Lord. And with this family, all the riches of heaven are found in Jesus the Lord. We're going to see three ideas here that Peter brings to us. Uh, Our salvation, as it's reserved for us in heaven. Our salvation that we find in heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. Our salvation amidst trials. How that heavenly inheritance reshapes, reworks, and repurposes our trials. And how this is nothing new. It's what the prophets have prophesied of old, that Messiah would come And in him we would find resurrection hope. Well, Peter, as he gets into this section after his introduction, uh, saying that, you know, we're elect exiles, he goes in verse 3 where we're opening up this sermon, saying, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy 
has begotten us according to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, so often we read the epistles of Paul and he unfolds a doctrinal point and he gets to a place where the, the theology is, is just so deep, so glorious. It shows us something of the resurrected Lord, of the triune God that we serve, and he just falls back on his seat saying, wow, our God is amazing and glorious. And Peter, he, he flips that around. He starts with the glory of the Lord. He starts with how amazing our God is and how gracious he is. Uh, to the point where a lot of people uh, it, have interpreted this passage as an early hymn. Uh, is it or isn't it? I don't know. Uh, it's definitely hymnic. There's a, a melody to it, a drumbeat throughout it that just continues to point to the glory of the Lord. Yet, as we have been those brought into God's house, and God has become our Father, why doesn't it look like anything's really changed for many of us? Why do God's children often look so poor? Well, he points to this inheritance. He points to the riches that we've found in Jesus Christ. And really, if we remember that this audience is predominantly Jews who have come to know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they will, when they hear inheritance, they're going to think land promise. They're going to think what God has promised us of old is, is coming to pass. Or that's what Peter is talking about as he points them to this idea of inheritance. And not only that, but also the Gentiles have been folded in. As Israel was supposed to be the nation that God uses to bless all the other nations, now through the church, the whole world can come to Jesus Christ in Messiah. They can say, our father Abraham is your father Abraham, Gentiles, which is most of us, if not all of us. And Peter, though he goes back to this inheritance idea, it's a heavenly inheritance. And he gets us to get our minds out of this kind of earthly setting and get our minds kind of up in heaven. But what that means, it doesn't mean that we just you know, look up, have this pie-in-the-sky mentality, just walking around, thinking about heaven, thinking about the location of heaven. It's really a direction of your soul that's always directed toward communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly-mindedness is loving what God loves, hating what he hates, doing everything for the Lord. You know, so, so often you hear this idea uh, or this phrase, oh, he's so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. I'll tell you today, if you're not heavenly-minded, you're definitely not any earthly good. The only reason you can be some sort of good here on this earth is if you have your mind up in heaven, focused on communion with God. And it's through that that we can actually live in this world in a profitable way. The, the way that this is done, according to Peter here, is that we are reborn, born into God's house, made his children. He talks about this regeneration in verse 3, where we're born again unto this living hope, which is the resurrection of the Lord. This idea of taking our heart of stone out of us, putting in a heart of flesh that beats with a love for the Lord, to come to know him better and better throughout our lives. But what I think is fascinating here in this, this portion, 
uh, that we're reading, really the whole book of Peter. You could even say the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is all that said hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even to the point where the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if, the, if Christ isn't risen, the gospel that we preach is empty. It's worthless. We're all fools being here right now if, if Christ isn't raised. And also our faith, it's empty. It's worthless and does no good. Now, without the resurrection, we don't really know if Christ was perfect or obedient or a good sacrifice. We have no hope. But with Christ, as the resurrected one, we have hope. And our hope in the resurrection is as imperishable as the God who resurrected the Lord. And so often in, in this kind of discussion, we talk about preservation and perseverance, and that's where, where he goes. And the question that would come to our mind is, can we lose this? Right? It would come to the mind of the Jews, wouldn't it? They've lost the, the temple. Uh, even the temple they have now is small. It's not the same glory as Solomon's. The land is, is taken away time and time again. The, the Davidic kingdom has been shattered and broken into a million pieces. So Peter, can this be taken away from us? Or how about this? Can we walk away from it? Do we have an inheritance in the Lord, that we can walk away from. Well, in verse 5, the uh, New King James Version says, we are kept, we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you have an ESV, it's going to say guard uh, instead of kept. Both these are deficient terms. Really, the idea that this word is uh, conveying is to be guard, guarded like a military guard guards whatever he was commissioned to guard. That guard standing outside of the throne room, protecting his king with his life. And he's saying, through faith, that's how God guards us. As, as one who would lay his life uh, up for protecting us, for preserving us, and causing us to persevere. Even to the point where in Philippians 1, Paul says, He who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, you have come to know the Lord in the gospel, and he saved you. But it's not just I got saved back then. He's preserving you. You're persevering, and he's saving you now. And he's going to save you at the resurrection of your body when the Lord returns. That's the holistic view that uh, the Bible brings to us for salvation. That if God has saved you in Messiah, he'll continue to save you through faith, depending on him. And he will vindicate you on the last day, not for your works, but for Christ. You know, this is the inheritance that is given to us. You know, we could really say our heavenly inheritance is Jesus Christ and, and in him the triune God. And then Peter moves to trials. What, what about the trials that God has brought you to? 
It doesn't only say that they're good, that they're good in the, in the long run. They're actually good for us. They're actually the way God refines our faith. And it's because of this heavenly inheritance that our trials are repurposed and reshaped and renewed and made unto a good end. You know, just look at that prayer list. Look at your own lives. You all go through trials. And maybe greater trials are yet to come. How do you prepare for those? How do you view your life when everything goes to pot? When you're brought into such a deep, dark valley that you can't see anything? How do you respond? Well, I think it's interesting because the believer can actually experience the full depth of their sorrows, of their trials. The believer can actually say, in Adam the human race fell because he ate that fruit. And because of our sins, we've added to it. We've made the penalty worse. And even in that, we can see the depths of our sorrows. We can say that the way things are in our, our trials and our sorrows in this estate of misery, it's not as they should be. It ought not to be. It's not according to the way God created the heavens and the earth. Yet at the same time, we can look at our trials and rejoice with great joy in our trials. We can actually see our trials as refining our faith. As God preserves us and causes us to persevere, he's refining our faith to the point where he makes, makes it more valuable than gold. Imperishable. You know, so often we, when, when we get married in the West, we put wedding bands on of silver or gold because we, we think that symbolizes longevity, long-lasting. What he's saying is, the faith that I'm working in you and refining you lasts longer than gold, than silver, than steel, because I'm refining you through these works. And God uses them for good. You even think of uh, Joseph. What about Joseph? Sold into slavery by his brothers. Like that, that's a trial. Uh, testified against by his boss's wife uh, falsely. He was thrown into prison for something he hadn't done. And God used that for the good of Joseph, for the good of his nation, for his people, and according to God's promises. And he's refining Joseph like gold. He does the same for us in our trials. And as he's refining us, we really become more shiny, shinier than gold, more reflectant. We actually become better image bearers. We look more and more like Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God. And in a strange way, he uses these trials to make us ready for the return of Christ unto even our own glory and honor. Our own glory and honor. You know, so often we, we think all glory goes to Christ. That's, that's true. Glory goes to the Lord. Anything we do, it's not, but me, it's not me, but Christ in me. Christ working in me. The Spirit indwelling me, causing me to obey, to return to God in trials. Yet in a strange way, on that last day, when we're vindicated, we'll be glorified. 
because all the works that we do are in Christ. And since they're in Christ, the Father accepts them. And because of this, we wait on, on Christ. Since we don't see him, yet we believe. Verse 7, um, or verse 8 rather. Whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What is he saying here? He's saying the thing to do in trials is to love Christ, to love the Lord. Turn and say, Lord, I love you. Help me to love you as I should. You know, this question of do you love the Lord is really the most important question anyone can ask you. It's this question that really puts you down two paths. A path towards heaven and dwelling with the Lord forever in communion with Father, Son, and Spirit, or the path of going down that road directed straight to hell and punished for your sins. Do you love the Lord? Not do you, did you love the Lord at one point, it's do you continue to love the Lord, getting up every day saying, I love Jesus the Messiah. He's mine and I am his. Help me to love him more. Even to the point where Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We come into the presence and worship of this holy triune God. Coming to understand this idea, do I love Jesus or do I not? That's what's going to change the direction if you go toward that, that path of being destructed in hell or if that reshapes the whole way you live, living in the face of God, reshaping and repurposing all of your trials. What Peter is saying is, you know, in your trials, your inheritance is already yours. It's secured in Jesus Christ. It's yours now. And because you have this great inheritance, which really is inheriting Jesus Christ the Lord, not just hell insurance, not just uh, you know, instruction in our Bibles to live a good life, it's inheriting Jesus Christ the Lord. And in him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in communion with our triune God. So really, why do you worry in trials? Not to mitigate the depths of the trials. The trials are deep. But we go through those trials with the Lord with us. Our inheritance already secured, not because of what we do, but because what Christ did. It's as secure and unfading, imperishable, as the God who gives it. Then Peter moves on to this idea that this inheritance and the way it should shape our trials isn't anything new. It didn't come with Jesus being incarnate. It was spoken of throughout the whole Old Testament. It's our salvation according to what the prophets have prophesied. In verse 10, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So often in the West, particularly in evangelicalism, we ask the question, 
Well, does the New Testament replace the Old Testament? Now that we have this new revelation, what about all that old stuff? Do we put it away? Let it never be. It's, if you want to think about it this way, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament working as two lips proclaiming the gospel. Without the New Testament, the Old Testament isn't pointing to anything. Without the, new, without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't really make sense. You can't even try reading the book of Hebrews without looking back to the Old Testament. It wouldn't make any sense. All we would do is pervert it. But with these two, Christ is preached, the gospel. And this gospel pointing to the suffering of Christ, his blood, and the ascension, his resurrection, unto this gospel hope that we have in him. In verse 11, it says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us, us today, and them, uh, Peter's original audience, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's the Spirit of God that testifies of the suffering of Christ and the, the gospel that he is raised. And in him we find resurrection life and resurrection hope. Christ has ascended and is not with us in his body now. He's in heaven. But he gave us the spirit to testify of his sufferings. If you think back to Isaiah 53, it says, yet it, was not the will, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's the will of God to crush Jesus Christ for our sins. It's the prophets that prophesied of the atonement of Christ. And again, in Joel chapter 2, remember, Christ is a sin, he's not with us, but today... The Spirit brings the gospel to us. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet prophesied of this. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That's not the gospel rooted in the Old Testament. I don't really know what is. It's the prophets that prophesied of Jesus. You know, what about us today? People in the West, evangelicalism, and if we're being honest in our OPC congregations and in our own congregation, we come to church for 101 wrong reasons. Do you come to fellowship with God expecting that the Spirit through the word, would testify to you the suffering of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, his sitting on the right hand of God. He even says at the end of this, it's marvelous, this, this thing, this gospel that we've come to know, the angels marvel over it. Things which angels desire to look into. You've come to know something if you know the Lord that the, even the angels are baffled by. 
So do you go to church to hear that great gospel and see how it tells us about our heavenly inheritance, tells us about how God uses that to reshape our trials unto the refining of our faith and how it's according to his, his prophets, which means it's God keeping his promises. The prophets waited for what we have now in Messiah. And now we, seeking to be heavenly minded in this earth while Christ is in heaven, the spirit indwelling with us, uniting us to Christ, we wait for a second coming. You know, I think it's true that the Lord gives us enough grace that we will persevere until the coming of the Lord. But he holds back enough of that glory of God that we'll always continue to long to see Jesus face to face. as As Paul works through Revelation, just jump to the very end. We're waiting for Jesus. That's what we are to do as those who maybe are, as these people pushed out, uh, even at this time, they're, um, they're out, pushed out of society. Peter's writing to them from Rome, right as persecution is bubbling. Are we the ones who are so heavenly minded that we become some earthly good? You know, because Jesus is risen, the promises of the Father shape our trials, as the prophets have prophesied. So if you or a loved one is going through a difficult circumstance, look to Christ. Look particularly to the resurrection of the Christ and hope in that resurrection. And elders who are here, remember that this is the Peter who Christ met on the beach after he has risen. Peter, and Christ said to Peter, do you love me? I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. He's feeding the sheep by taking them and bringing them to the living water found in the resurrection of the Lord. Recommit yourselves as pastors of God's people to feeding the sheep today, tomorrow, and forever, even when the sheep bite. And if, if you look at my heart, you look at your heart, we as sheep often bite. But pastors and elders, be like Pastor Peter and bring them to the glory of our triune God in the resurrection of Christ. And we could put this whole thing simply by saying, the Father gives us an inheritance in the person of Jesus whom the Spirit reveals. That's the second thing that, that you elders need to do and we need to do as a congregation. We need to be Trinitarian. If you read through 1 Peter, it's like every other word he's making a reference to the Father, then to the Son, then to the Spirit. The Trinity is just stuck in his mind and he sees everything through a Trinitarian lens. If we're going to endure through trials and they're going to be the refining of our faith, we need to do it as Trinitarians, looking to the work of God in Christ as we depend on the Spirit. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, they're charismatics. We're charismatics. We depend on the Spirit. We depend on the Word. It's the Spirit that leads us through the Word and causes us to see what we could not see without the Spirit.
And really, we could take these three points of uh, our heavenly inheritance, what God does with our trials, and our uh, salvation according to the prophets. We can really take them and they can just revolve around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, If Christ isn't raised, none of these things are true. If Christ is raised from the dead, we have resurrection hope in Jesus, in the gospel. We can start to act like it. In seminary, as we take classes on how to preach, they'll talk about the different elements of the sermon, like exposition, right? Unfolding what the text says. Illustration would be making a picture out of it. Another category is application, which is how should we live according to this text? And I don't know if I really like the word application for that context, for what we're doing right now. I can tell you how to live according to this, but it's us when we leave these doors, take this sermon, put it on us like a wristwatch that we just look at constantly. What time is it? What time is it? What, what does that sermon say about what I'm doing right now? That's how we apply this sermon. That's how we live as God's people. So we can apply it together, can't we? Take this sermon and live in resurrection hope. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are glorious and great, and we thank you for bringing us into your house of praise. Lord, this is the Lord's day. We give all praise and glory and honor to you, and we thank you for your word and your spirit that dwells in us. Lord, use your word and your spirit to reform our lives, to make us more uh, Christ-like. Give us the mind of Christ and the spirit of God. We bless your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.